Good morning. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time you've given us and ask that you would graciously, powerfully, effectively, lovingly apply your word by your spirit to our hearts now. Father, give us a greater glimpse that our Savior and High Priest and Bridegroom, Jesus Christ, so that we might, as a result of this morning's study in your word, become more acquainted with him, know him, love him, taste and see and enjoy and delight in him. We pray this, Lord, for the sanctifying goodness of our souls. We come to you weak and weary. We come to you needful and hungry. And Father, we confess that Christ and Christ alone can provide for us the satisfaction that we need, that in Him is the life-giving waters to help us thrive. Father, I pray that you would be with me this morning and allow the words that I speak to be your words and give us all clarity and conviction in your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There was Adam and Eve. Later, we know about Isaac and Rebekah. Perhaps a little bit more famously is Romeo and Juliet. There's the infamous Abelard and Heloise. Or more recently, there is William and Kate, Whitley and Duane, Martin and Gina. Perhaps you have your own ideal couple floating around in your mind as you consider true love. Parents, maybe grandparents, perhaps a couple from church who exhibit passion for one another, true commitment, selfless love. No matter who you think of, romantic love has captured the hearts and minds of men and women from the very beginning of history. In fact, the first words any human spoke in the Bible are the words of Adam as he proclaims a love song, a romantic poem, to his new resplendent bride. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Love and romance and intimacy between two persons is part and parcel of the grand human story. It's in our DNA. And though Adam's first words were words composing a love song about love, they certainly wouldn't be the last words written about love. Many songs will be written, and if the Lord tarries, hopefully many more songs will be written, although the recent ones seem to be a little more corny than the old ones. This morning, we're going to begin a series on one of those songs. In fact, this isn't just any love song. It may be not only the most famous of love songs, but arguably the best love song ever written. Of course, talking about the Song of Solomon, otherwise known as the Song of Songs. 
You can find it right in the middle of your Bibles, right after the book of Ecclesiastes, right before the book of Isaiah. And if you're using the Pew Bible in front of you, you can find it on page 560. It's eight chapters long. It can be read straight through in about 15 to 20 minutes. If you've not already done so, I'd encourage you to read through the book straight through. Many folks have actually come up to me this past week and said that they're reading the book aloud with their spouse. That's great. In fact, that's really good for your marriage. What I want to do this morning is hopefully give us an overview and an introduction to this book that we'll spend the next couple of weeks working through. You have the book, open up to chapter 1, verse 1. Verse 1 is an appropriate beginning, well, not because it's the first verse, but also because it provides for us a kind of key to the rest of the book. So let's read chapter 1, verse 1, the Song of Solomon. As it says, the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. This is God's word. If we want to understand rightly what we're reading, we need to really hold on to verse 1. The first thing we notice in the book, well, is that this really isn't a book at all, is it? What does the verse tell us? It's a song. Or to put differently, but still saying the same thing, it's poetry put to music. We know about that, right? That's throughout the Bible. Many, if not most, of the psalms were poems put to music and meant to be sung. And this book, or this song, is no different. So it's not a letter. It's not a gospel narrative. It's not a systematic theology of thick, robust theology like Romans. We want to read and understand it. We have to see it as poetry. Doug O'Donnell, in his commentary on the song, suggests that This was meant to be, and perhaps really was, sung at weddings in ancient Israel. We know that Jewish wedding celebrations lasted for about a week. Those must have been fun parties. And just as there were professional singers at the temple, many times there were professional singers hired to sing mournful songs at a funeral. Well, so too at weddings there would be professional singers who would sing through Solomon's song of marital love. It was a wedding song. Perhaps that's something we ought to encourage in our own day. Rather than the unoriginal played out wedding DJ who plays the same Black Eyed Peas song year after year after year. We can resurrect this more ancient and biblical tradition of having friends and family joyfully sing the song of Solomon. Keith, maybe you can start working on a tune for it. <coughs> but this, since this is a poetic song... Uh, We need to think about how poetry functions, right? And as we go through this, we're going to bring up a lot of poetic terms, hopefully learning and rehashing what we learned in high school English, English about poetry. So we're not reading here a manual on what the wedding night looks like. Neither are we reading a systematic theology of love and marriage. Now, no doubt there is chock full of theology about love in this book. And there are many how-tos that we can learn from in this song. But the primary function of the poem, as all poems are, is to be evocative. To cause us, the readers, to delight in its subject matter. As we read through the various metaphors and allusions 
similes and images. The author could have said, two people coming together in marriage is enjoyable. But he didn't. Look at verse 2. He says, your love is better than wine. See the image he's evoking there? In other words, the love experience between two lovers is intoxicating, delightful. It overwhelms the senses. It's, it's love that needs to be smelled and tasted and drank of deeply in order to move the heart to joy. The poem is presenting truths to us in a beautiful way. And because it's presented in a beautiful way, it evokes within us a beautiful response. It penetrates not only our minds, but our hearts, our emotions, and stirs our desires. It's calling us, using all the tools that poetry can employ to enjoy the beauty and goodness of intimate love. Now, it's at this point, caution needs to be given. Precisely because it's poetry, we need to be reminded that it is not a full-out, shock-and-awe description of what happens behind closed doors. I say this because we live in a world where the full-out shock-and-awe details of what ought to be kept private actually now bombards us from every direction. Is this a poem about what happens between two lovers on their marriage night? Unashamedly, yes. Is this a forthright video expose of what happens between two lovers on their marriage night? No, and may it never be. Some of the language used does provide some opportunities for a slight blush. But nowhere does the song, or any biblical language for that matter, enter into sheer detail or pornographic explanation. In other words, as we work our way through this song, I want us all to take note that the language used here is one of imagery and metaphor. The song's lyrics about tasting and touching, they're candy, yes, But they're not crude. The song certainly isn't prudish. It's dealing with sexual intimacy. But by no means is the song immodest. Keith, can I get some water? In Ephesians 5.12, Paul tells the Ephesians church that uh, he says it's shameful even to speak of the things that the unbelievers are doing in secret. Paul's concern in that passage is with the sexual sins found throughout the city of Ephesus And Paul's saying in that passage that that he can, as the apostle, teach on, reprove, and even lead a people steeped in the sexual culture and sins of their day, and yet he can do so without mentioning or dwelling on the crude specifics of any given sin. This shows us, at least in one sense, that we too don't need to speak of particular acts in detail. This means for us that what's being spoken of here in the song ought to at least give us some defined space on how to talk. Or, from my perspective, which comforts me, I don't want to, and thankfully the Bible doesn't allow me to engage in parsing out the details of the song in a kind of crude and shocking way. Not meant for you all to hear. Thank you, brother. Which leads me to another point about this song. For parents who are here with their children, and I hear children, that's great. Stay here. This ought to provide a bit of comfort for us as we go through this book. This book is in the Bible, and we can preach through it, because it's in the Bible, to the whole church, to our whole families. 
without embarrassment, or at least, at least not a whole lot of embarrassment. In fact, I'd suggest that this is actually the best way to begin this discussion with your kids. It's God's word, and it's giving us truth in every one of its very good and inspired lines. The picture being painted here is far better and far safer than any Super Bowl commercial that you'll see. It's far more nuanced and better to read through than any locker room conversation your young son will have in the future. Which, by the way, makes us ask the question, who is this song written for? In one sense, I think we all can guess it's written for everybody, isn't it? Since it's in the Bible and we believe it's inspired by God, it is for all God's people to read, meditate on, and apply. But within the book, we can get a bit of a clue as to who the intended audience is. The first, as you've probably also guessed, is it's for married couples. And that's right. It's a marriage song celebrating a brand new marriage. This is confirmed actually in the repeated phrase showing up throughout the song. So look at chapter 2, verse 16. Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 16. My beloved is mine, and I am his. This is the bride exclaiming with joy the now consummate marriage, a commitment of love that will now last throughout their lives, the two main characters of this book. Turn over to chapter 6, verse 3. Chapter 6, verse 3. There it is again. My beloved is mine and I am his. And then just one more chapter, chapter 7, verse 10. I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. So this is for married couples. But that's not the only intended audience. There's another audience which we can see by one other important phrase that's repeated throughout the song. This refrain is first found back in chapter 2 again, verse 7. So go back to chapter 2, verse 7, and read there. The female character in this poem cries out to her listening friends, her young friends, and she says this in verse 7, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. That phrase is repeated throughout the Song of Solomon. And it's showing us that the other intended audience are young, unmarried women and girls. Does that surprise you? The wisdom being given here is this. (coughs) O daughters of Jerusalem, or translated differently, O you young women who have not yet known a man, I adjure you, I plead with you, don't pursue the love of a man, Until the time is right. There will be a right time. And by the way, I'm inviting you into this poetic expression, this song of love, so that you can see how wonderful real love is. But I'm doing that so that you will wait. This fits what I think the song is talking about. The first point was that this book is a song, right? It's a poem. But the second point we see in verse 1 is what? It's a song of songs, the song of songs. If we take this book to be written by King Solomon, as I think verse 1 is telling us, King Solomon, the son of David, 
Then the point to be seen is this, that at least in Solomon's mind, and I think also by the inspiration of God, this is Solomon's best song ever. This is the song of songs, the song of all songs that Solomon wrote, which might surprise you if you consider all that Solomon had written. In 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 32, we're told that Solomon wrote over 1,000 songs. Verse 1 here is telling us that of all those songs, this one's his best. And here's where it gets really interesting. It ought to be a little bit surprising to us if we know about Solomon, that one, Solomon is the author of this song, and two, this is his best song. If we think about Solomon, he was not the kind of role model we'd expect to write on the joy and beauty of a monogamous marital relationship. Solomon, strictly speaking, did not keep holy the mantra as seen in chapter 2, verse 16, where the woman there says that my beloved is mine and, and I am his He grazes among the lilies. Solomon sadly and sinfully explored other lilies and chased after other fruit. And yet, it seems to me that this song could be the best of Solomon's song precisely because of who Solomon was and his history. In other words, in view of his idolatrous, polygamous relationships that led his heart away from the Lord and away from sexual purity and marital intimacy, Solomon can set himself up as the foil in this song and thus write the song from a standpoint of repentance and self-deprecation. He's saying to his readers, he's saying to us, look, I know the calamity, the destruction, the pain and the hurt and the wreckage that comes from infidelity and from stirring up love outside of its rights boundaries. So I write this to you as wisdom literature, which this book is. I write this to you as a poem of wisdom to show you the right way to do it. In other words, do as I write here. Don't do as I did back over there. Which is again why we see this really being written for girls and young women not yet married. In Solomon's other book, the book of Proverbs, He addresses their boys. Proverbs is a book for boys. The word son is used over 40 times. The word daughter, never used once. My son, stay away from that kind of girl, Proverbs 7. Don't marry this kind of girl, Proverbs 22. Ah, but do save yourself and marry that kind of girl, Proverbs 31. That's how the book actually ends, intentionally giving the young unmarried man a picture of a wise and virtuous woman for who he should wait for and marry. The Song of Songs, then, is Solomon's book for girls. And as one commentator puts it, its message is this, patience and then passion. If you have uncompromised purity now, you can have unquenchable passion later. Or again, as the repeated phrase puts it, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Now take note here, I'm not saying, and the song isn't promising, that if you wait, then you will then de facto have a good marriage. No, even within the poem itself, we see a little tiff between the couple. Marriage is hard work. It takes sacrifice and selfless commitment. But nonetheless, it is so worth it and good 
that it's worth waiting for. So here's a song. It's the best song out of all the songs. And lastly, here's my third point. It's written by Solomon. We've already seen why that's a unique aspect to this book. Solomon was, before the coming of Christ, the wisest man to ever live. The Bible makes that clear. And yet, when it comes to marital fidelity, marital passion, he did not seem to heed his own wisdom, did he? Perhaps better stated, even despite his sinful life and polygamous failures, God graciously used this man to present to us a picture of what true godly love looks like. The truth is, God regularly does that. God is an expert at taking our weaknesses, our failures, even our sins, and through humility and repentance, working in us strength, wisdom, and the ability to overcome and put to death sin. Now notice what I'm not saying here. I'm not saying what many people today claim, that in order to grow, you have to fall. In order to learn, you've got to make mistakes. I'm not saying that, and the Bible never says that. Satan says things like that. That was part of his temptation to Adam and Eve. We'll see that in a couple weeks. Do you really want to know good and evil? Do you want to really know wisdom, whispered Satan? And don't listen to what God said. Just, just experience the fruit now. Taste it. Yeah, you'll have made a mistake, but that's how you grow. That's how you can be like God, really knowing good and evil. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying, and what I think the Bible does say, is that God can still use us even when we fail. Ultimately, though, God loves to use us and gives us instruction on how best to be used by him through listening and obeying his word and not failing. You see the difference? Solomon failed. He repented and God still used him to write for us this wonderful and wise bit of poetry on how not to fail like he failed. So you can know the wisdom of Solomon and you can know that wisdom well that he shows us here concerning true love and marriage by obeying what God says to you through Solomon. And you don't have to go through the pain and the hurt that Solomon went through in order to write this wise book. So contra what our world tells us today, you don't have to make mistakes in order to first grow. You can grow and find the blessing of God's wisdom by simply obeying. That's what we want to do by going through this book. Which leads me to my last point about Solomon being the writer of this song. And I think this helps us understand how we're supposed to read this book and apply it to our lives. Solomon was a man deeply acquainted with the sexual sin and grief of his failures. I mean, literally, having over 700 wives and 1,000 concubines, that can't be good for anything. And yet he's written us this, this most beautiful song calling us to a better life. In fact, I think the music and, and the melodic line of this poem is pointing us, I think, not only to a better life, but the perfect life, literally. The song begins with betrothal, proceeds and finds its climax with the wedding and the wedding night, and then moves on to the deeper waters of intimacy within a growing marriage. And as such, Solomon, thinking about writing about marriage, was steeped and no doubt was probably thinking about the writings found in Genesis, 
found his inspiration for this song in Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3, which talk about marriage. He was looking at the first marriage, first marriage of Adam and Eve, thinking about the, that first love song ever written by Adam. And out of that context began writing this magnum opus, The Song of Songs, which incidentally this sermon series isn't just The Song of Songs, but it's also going to include Mike preaching through Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3. The two books go together. So as we get ready to embark on this journey through this beautiful song, I want you to first meditate. Meditate now. Meditate throughout the next coming weeks on the goodness of what was happening in Eden before the fall. Can you imagine an uncursed garden? A place where the sun's warmth was always just right? The breeze just ever so slightly and perfectly blowing? And where lying in the grass was a delight and never itchy? Can you imagine a world where men and women related to each other perfectly? Where the words spoken were always honest and truly reflected the heart? Never double talk. Where there was never disdain, never mistrust, never a lack of respect or harsh words spoken? Where babies didn't die in childbirth and childbirth wasn't painful? Can you imagine a world with no evil, no enemies, where everyone chose to do the good, the beautiful, and the true? Maybe you can't imagine that kind of world, because that's certainly not the world that we live in now. But it was the world of Eden. It was the world that God created. He made it good and perfect and without sin. And then he, he placed man and woman in that world together, naked and unashamed, and said, yes, this is very good. In that world of Eden, sin had not yet entered in through the one man, and without sin, there was no death. And after Adam sins, everything changes. The Bible's story, depiction of God's good world, it changes. Everything gets darker, bleaker, uglier. Sad. But the closest we ever get to being back in the Garden of Eden and the rest of the Bible, I think, is here in the poetry of Song of Solomon. We read here in this song of a man and a woman who can gaze upon one another in their native majesty, unarrayed of any clothing, and just like it was in Eden, feel no shame and have no fear. In the Song of Solomon, we see a return to Eden reversing the alienation caused by the fall and entering back into harmony, unity, selfless love. What becomes striking is that, I think we'll see this, virtually every love scene within this song is based in a kind of garden-like setting. There's descriptions of cedar trees and, and fig trees and Apple trees and a vineyard with grapes in full season, blossoming flowers and luscious grass. And the groom in the poem is seen as like this Adam-like figure, tending to his garden, working it and keeping it and, and having dominion over the varied animals throughout the garden and land. The other major setting throughout the poem is Jerusalem, Zion, the city of David, which Incidentally, throughout the Old Testament, is always seen as a kind of new Eden, 
a mountain city where God himself dwells with his people. And it was at the center of Jerusalem in the temple. And in the middle of that temple in a room called the Holy of Holies where God's glory was present with his people just like he was in Eden. James Hamilton suggests that Solomon titled his book The Song of Songs to reflect the title The Holy of Holies, intimating that within this poem we can see what it was like for man and woman to walk shamelessly and beautifully with God. We're invited into a kind of sacred space as the poem stirs our imaginations to enjoy the beauty of what God originally intended. And it's this trajectory that we want to take note of as we read and and apply the song to ourselves. This trajectory from Eden to Jerusalem to the new Jerusalem. From Adam to David to the son of David, Solomon, who wrote this book. All the way to the new Adam, Jesus, who is the true son of David. And we can see how this line, this, this trajectory fits within the poem, can't we? How the first Adam... Though there was glory and beauty in his marriage with Eve, that glory and beauty was darkened in their fall and and in their exile from Eden. In Genesis 3, the couple begins to to blame one another. There's shame and guilt wedged between them. But now in the Song of Songs, we see a new Adam emerge, a son of David in Solomon-like splendor who will recapture the beauty and glory lost at the fall. A new Adam who will pursue and cherish And selflessly commit and give himself to his bride. So we can read the Song of Songs in its description of marriage and in its poetic images of the wedding night. And find a legitimate connection to Jesus who is himself preparing a wedding feast for his bride in the new heavenly Jerusalem. We're not only looking back to Eden. But we're recapturing the beauty of an unfallen world. And and we're looking forward in hope anticipating the glory that is still yet to be revealed When Christ returns for his church, his bride. This is why later the Apostle Paul can legitimately connect the marriage bond of a man and a woman as pointing to the greater reality of Jesus and the church. In Ephesians 5.31, after quoting Genesis, which explains the nature of marriage, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Paul then goes on to connect this truth by saying that ultimately this this mystery refers to or points to Christ and the church. Our union with Jesus, our head. In other words, what Paul picks up on as he looks at the doctrine of marriage seen throughout the Bible, beginning in Genesis and, and no doubt reading through the Song of Songs, is that marriage is given by God to point and reflect the story of the gospel of God. The gospel which says that Jesus, in love for his people, gave his life up to save them. And then upon his resurrection, he would bring them, all of them who trust and believe in him alone, putting their faith in him. He would bring them to himself and never cast them away. This is why whether you're married or not, whether you're a single mother, a widow, or a young high school guy, This book is meant for you and to stir your heart. It's presenting to us a marriage that is passionate. It's showing us a couple that is committed and in all its poetic beauty offering us a love that almost drips off the pages. Why is this good for your heart? Because good marriages 
make the best sermons about Christ. If all marriages show us the gospel in some way, and all do, then the best marriages really draw us in to delight in the gospel. They beg us to make much of Jesus Christ. The Song of Songs is giving us a great, great marriage. It's no coincidence that this is why Satan has from day one been seeking to malign the name of God by bringing turmoil and disunity into marriages. Read Genesis chapter 3, and you can see how Satan's whole move is to twist and distort the relationship between Adam and Eve. He wants to hide the beauty of God. He wants to sling mud on the image of Christ by slinging mud and bringing disunity between the picture of Christ and Adam and Eve. You see, the, the devil hates Jesus Christ. Now, he can't do anything to Jesus Christ, but he knows that he can do a lot to mess up what reflects the beauty of Jesus Christ by messing up marriages. Are you married? Fight for joy in your spouse. This song will help you do that. Pray for your marriage and ask God to keep the honor and beauty of his son to be continually reflected brightly in your marriage. Is your marriage on the rocks? Fight for joy in your spouse and prayerfully read through the song to see what that looks like. I promise you as we move through this, we'll see in surprising ways how we can stir up and rekindle passion. Are you divorced? You'll find within these pages of Solomon's song a story of redemption, forgiveness, and healing. As it shows us the beauty of Eden, it also stirs within us a very real longing for glory, for that time when Christ, our Redeemer, will welcome us with open arms and wipe away every tear and sit us down at the table he's personally prepared for us, a table which celebrates his love towards us that will never end. Read through this book prayerfully. Praying and seeking to delight in him, our true and better groom, who will never let us go, will never mistreat us, and will never fall out of love with us. Are you single and desiring the intimacy and love found in marriage? I think I can do no better than quoting Pastor Mike's email sent out about a week ago. He says this, quote, Your identity in Christ is the most basic thing about you. You also need to know that contrary to the opinion of the world, and sometimes even in the church, sexual fulfillment is not a basic part of human identity. Otherwise, Jesus Christ, a man who never knew a woman, would not be fully human. I want to encourage you, says Pastor Mike, to process this book in two ways. First, every time you're tempted to discouragement, because the sermon holds up something as good that you don't have, long more for the true joy and satisfaction that comes from knowing Christ. Second, consider if there is anything you can do to grow in the kind of godliness that you will need to be a blessing to someone else in marriage. Don't think so much about how you want to get a blessing, but think about how you can be a blessing. That's good advice. Have you ever had your own words quoted to you in church? I would add, pray not only for your deepest joy to be found in Christ, but pray for your married brothers and sisters as well. 
their temptation is to find their deepest identity in their marriage, in their family, or in their kids. And the Bible calls that idolatry. So single folks, pray for your married brothers and sisters as they pray for you. Are you here as someone that's never even considered the Song of Solomon, nor the Bible, nor even really the message of the gospel? Perhaps your understanding of Christianity excludes any concept of sex. I encourage you and invite you to stay through this series with us. Many people understand Christians and Christianity to see sex as taboo, off limits. That we kind of only put up with it, you know, in order to have kids. A picture of 50s television with the husband and wife in one room, but on their own single separate beds. Well... I want to show you, invite you, as we study this book, that God has not only ordained for man and woman to be intimate, but that he created it and he pronounced it very good. On the other hand, I invite you to see with us a picture of intimacy, sexuality, that is profoundly different from that offered by the world. A picture that is, I'm convinced, more beautiful, sacred, and selfless, and therefore more beautiful or enjoyable enduring, and even worshipful. The Christian worldview, in distinction from what we see all around us, neither takes sex casually by denigrating it in its importance and beauty, but neither do we uphold sex to be worshipped and pursued as a major part of what it means to be fulfilled in life. And sadly, that's what many people have bought into today, both sides offering empty promises. If sex is no big deal and can be pursued lightly, Cutting it off, and it is cut off from God's ordained purposes within the confines of marriage, then it becomes denigrated and cheapened. If sex is pursued as something that is essential to life, needed on a regular basis to fulfill what it means to be human, well, then it's made into an idol, becoming a god, and thus cutting the person off from his or her real intended purpose in worshiping the Lord. In the Song of Songs, we will see that sex is good. But it is not God. It is rather a good gift from God to be enjoyed within the God-ordained boundaries of marriage. Thus, for those not yet married, wait. Or as the book tells us, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, to not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. For those who are married, pursue your lover with the passion described here. My beloved is mine, and I am his, for your love is better than wine. For those who may be called to a life of singleness, wait and pursue all at once. Wait now as God sustains you, giving you joy in Christ. Serious, serious, heart-rending, soul-satisfying joy in Christ. I'll end here as the psalmist calls us in Psalm 73, all of us using language, I think, reminiscent of the Song of Songs. O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. In Christ, tasting and seeing and enjoying his goodness, there is no lack of good. He is the good shepherd, the better and perfect husband, and he is the one who can truly love 
and fulfill our soul's every and deepest desire. So let us go to him, see him, and enjoy him. Let's pray.